I don't. I have. Do- I don't know if doctors get fifty percent off uh, appetizers at Applebee's uh, necessarily by wearing their coats, but <laughs> I know I would. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America and right there on your podcast app. I'm one half of your hosts, Yael Ososki, coming to you from the Vienna studio back home here. And uh, I want to wish a, a hearty hello to my radio and podcast partner, David Clement in Toronto. David, sir, how goes it? Oh, it's going all right. The weather is starting to warm up a little bit. Um which is nice. It feels like spring is uh, on the way and uh, very excited to be um, getting the crew back together in a few weeks as well, getting the whole team, the gang, back together in one place. So it's going to be a nice rest of the month, I think. Yeah, we'll be departing for Dubai here in a little bit. And um David, you know you're bringing you're bringing your mic, so we're going to be doing this on the road. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Perfect. Live from Dubai. Live from Dubai, and um, I I assume we're not going to break any laws while we're there. Uh, however, it is not the most permissible of regimes, as far as I've read. Yes. Yeah, we will be on our best behavior as always. And uh, speaking of best behavior, I think we're offering that in uh, today's program, David. We've got two great guests. Uh, we will cover the gamut of news across North America and the world. Uh, give our listeners a little bit of a preview uh, so they can know what to expect. Uh, yeah, so we have journalist Justin Ling um, talking about conspiracy theories and, and some of the specific ones that we've seen in regards to Ukraine. And then we talk with Michelle Rumpel Garner about cryptocurrency and Canadian legislation. She's introduced a bill um, to kickstart that conversation. So two great guests back to back. Um, just a, just an all-star cast here for, for this week's episode. And I actually, uh, yeah, very excited for that. I did have a couple of clips uh, from some weeks ago that I forgot to play. Oh, let's hear it. Uh, just, uh... all right, so now we're going to play a clip I had from a few weeks ago. Uh, something that'll be uh, of interest. It kind of coincides with a lot of our topics. Then we can talk a little bit about media as well. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren was excited when she saw this kind of democracy at work. Warren knows that if we're going to preserve democracy in America, if we're going to fight Russia, then Elizabeth Warren is going to need fingertip control of your family's finances now and always. And by the way, don't try and hide anything from Elizabeth Warren, say in cryptocurrency, because if you do, Elizabeth Warren will know you are working for Vladimir Putin. As I mentioned earlier, we're going after two things, trying to squeeze the Russian economy and also trying to squeeze those oligarchs, right? The problem is we're doing that only through the formal banking system. And we're doing a good job on that. And that is very effective. It's historic. I'm 100% behind it. But there's there's a hole in the dike here. And the hole is crypto. In other words, you gotta pick it crypto, if you want to continue to uh, uh, trade and provide the trading platforms and so on in the wallets, you can do business in Russia or you can do business in the United States, but you can't do business in both. Here's an idea. Let's keep dumb people and crazed partisan demagogues away from our financial system and our power grid. I, I just had it even <sighs> the last part from Tucker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean... Uh, I, I Elizabeth Warren just grinds my gears so much. The fact that she was like, "Listen, crypto," 
it just seems listen like, you ceo in your downtown office that's sort of what she's getting at yeah individual managing the crypto you better listen to me it just it it, it kind of feels regardless of the merits of what she sh- she's saying it just feels like she's out to lunch in regards to realizing like the decentralized nature of these platforms i mean yes there are exchanges and platforms that do formal business but there are also like hard wallets and all of that jazz and it's like it it's kind of like listen here US dollar yeah and it's it's <laughs> her attitude it just perfectly carries from you know normal i mean i can't imagine being a small business person who might be in her state you know represented by her and to hear her constantly on television say that you're bad and evil you know, and you got a plumbing company with like four employees, yeah. and it's like, God, I didn't know it was that bad. <laughs> um, you know, and it, it's controversial anyway to play Tucker Carlson these days. But I, I thought that was yeah. a very good clip, uh, just because he's he's you know understanding of of the broader situation and every single bill, David. And I know we track many bills uh, throughout Canada, throughout U.S., throughout Europe. Uh, There are many bills uh, that we deal with that we try to follow in terms of the Consumer Choice Center. We'll add our comment. Uh, to improve consumer choice. Every bill that I've ever dealt with federally in the United States that somehow restricts consumer choice has had the good old senator from Massachusetts. It's had her name on it. Yeah, she's, I mean, if it moves, if it's fun, if it's innovative, you can pretty much bank on her hating it. (laughs) And doing whatever she can to stop it. Um, Because I'm the tax man. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to play that because it's copyright strike, but you get the point. No, but yeah, like her worldview just seems to be like, how do I make everyone miserable? (laughs) Not our our unique flavor of what we like. And uh, if you you like the stuff that we talk about, obviously this is uh, the Consumer Choice radio program. Uh, Everything that is innovative technology, lifestyle, freedom, uh, smart policy. Uh, that's us, uh, probably not found or nor welcome in Elizabeth Warren's Senate office. Um, but yeah, David, since we last spoke last week, there's been a lot of different things that are happening. Uh, a lot, obviously, in the Ukraine theater, uh, the Russian troops, the bombardments, uh, a couple of uh, U.S. journalists that have been killed, also some, some local journalists as well. And it's that's kind of saddening to see. And we're, we're seeing a lot of the, the exodus uh, from Russia, from many Western companies. I hate using the term Western, but, you know, in this sort yeah, of sense, anti-Russian. I like, replacing, I like replacing Western with market-based democracies, because yeah, that pretty mar- much sums it up. I mean, then, you, then you're lumping in, like, the Japans, the South Koreas, the Australias, like, you, you get a better grouping of... Um, of countries, and you can generally understand what those values are. So the the liberal democracy, so we see the exodus of uh, all of the firms that are based in liberal democracies from Russia. There's, you know, sanctions. There are all types of calls uh, domestically in Russia to nationalize all of these operations. Um, I was thinking about this the other day, Dave, because we have seen in China, uh, there's a rise of more of these COVID cases, Hong Kong as well. And there are more lockdowns coming. I mean, we already have the war. We have the brute devastation of, of the people of uh, the country. We have China that'll be seizing up. 
inflation numbers going through the roof, mm-hmm. it's not going to be a good time for your average uh, consumer nor a citizen of a liberal democracy, I think, the next couple no. of months. No, it's not. And a lot of people are looking at China and, and saying, like, oh, well, it's coming for us. We're going for round six or whatever it is. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Um not that we really want to talk about COVID all that much. Well, I, I think it's also the supply chain stuff. Uh, I've noticed this from a couple of things I've been trying to buy is like stuff is not available. It's not getting sourced in China. And if all of these factories are closed, yeah, uh, that's going to be gonna even worse. Dinged. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, that's going to be a pain. I was more talking about the actual COVID cases. Oh, no, that we can't do that. We've got elections coming up. We can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, very good point. But I actually don't think it's going to be as bad uh, as the doomsayers are saying it's going to be. Maybe I'll, maybe we'll be recording this in two months and I'll be confined to my home again. But so this is um, a separate point, but I think it's, it's uh, relates to COVID, but also some of our work. Uh, you know, the, the whole theory of having a doctor on television is that it portrays some type of authority. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's like throughout in the U.S. you've had Dr. Fauci who's been on television, you know, endlessly. We've had many doctors who've testified and wearing the, the white coats. So I saw this in Colorado earlier this week. Uh, There's a, a testimony hearing about a vape flavor ban there, which is something oh, that we've been classic. active on. And uh, you had a couple of doctors uh, who also testified and uh, are in favor of the ban, and they're wearing their doctor coats in the state house. That's just it feels like theater. It feels a bit staged uh, because, as far as I know, I've I've seen doctors. You know, we've all seen doctors walking down the street. They don't wear their white coats uh, when they hop on the metro <laughs> or uh, in their car. Yeah, even. It, it, it's a strange flex. It's a strange flex. Yeah, um, it would be kind of like someone wearing their their uh, military fatigues or uniform um, to some sort of engagement where it was like not necessary nor appropriate. Well, oftentimes some veterans can receive discounts, so that's good. Well, actually, yeah, that's true. I'm I don't. Flex. I don't know Especially if doctors. If you're in the U.S., I don't know. If, get on first. <laughs> I don't have. Do, I don't know if doctors get fifty percent off uh, appetizers at Applebee's uh, necessarily by wearing their coats, but <laughs> I know I would. <laughs> but this is the kind of thing that I think is is frustrating, and maybe a lot of people recognize this. I mean, COVID is the latest example, obviously. Is we have authority figures, and I, I forget the name of the. Um, I think it was actually Michael Crichton. Michael Crichton observed that. It's I forget what the theory is, but imagine you have an expert in a particular area, and basically they know everything about it, and then when they read about it in the news, and they see a journalist or someone write an article about it, they're like, oh, well, they're totally wrong. Well, what if they're writing about other topics that you don't know about? Should we assume the same sort of ignoramus things? And I bring that up because I believe that doctors and their knowledge, medical knowledge, medical opinions are very much needed, are great. It's why we have progress. It's why we live to be 100-something. But it doesn't mean that doctors should be writing every policy ever. Well, and this is this is the... It's where we dip into the overlap of public health policy and economics or cost-benefit analysis. It's probably what we missed in the COVID debate because 
the the very heavy COVID restrictionists on the medical in the medical community side, we're looking at it from just the lens of how do we get cases to as close to zero as possible. And if that's your only lens, I mean, you will have a variety of policy prescriptions based on that. Um, but once you take into account the other factors and the, what those other factors are and how those also impact health. So, I mean, in regards to the vaping debate, um, could a ban on flavors reduce the amount of people who vape? It's possible. It's possible. But what's the alternative to that? And this is where the cost-benefit analysis comes into play. It's like, well, for a lot of these people, they used to be smokers. They switched to vaping, which is much, much um, better from a health perspective. Um, it should be a public health policy. It is in the UK, and it's working quite well. Um, so the alternative for those people who are obviously, for the most part, addicted to nicotine, um, they go back to smoking. And in what world is that? good public health and so it's like well if you only approach it from the lens of limiting the amount of people who vape or have or limiting access to vaping products well yeah you may achieve your goal but that doesn't mean that people don't seek that vice elsewhere or return to the vice that they quit um i think i think when we're in person uh in dubai and we're face to face. We can have the debate over uh, neoliberalism as well, because I think there are some functions of that 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 are cognizant in this conversation. Because there's, it's a lot of focus on the end goal, and whatever mm-hmm. we do to get to that end goal, you know, for doctors, it's like, well, we just don't want people to vote. We don't want we don't want people to vote. We don't want people to smoke. We don't want people to vape. We don't want people to do anything. So we'll just restrict everything we can until that point. Uh, yeah, but, but I mean, it's all on a sliding scale of prohibition. And Very everybody true. knows that Ooh, prohibition... I, like, oh, I right? love that. That's our title. Yeah. Um, we're definitely going to use that. All right, well, we got much more to come here on Consumer Choice Radio. Interviews with Justin Ling and Michelle Rimper-Garner. Coming up here, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Um, our next guest is freelance investigative journalist Justin Ling. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for having me. So uh, I, I've followed your work for uh, a long time. Um, you've written a lot about many different subjects, but one that you've really um, honed in on um, is misinformation and conspiracy theories. And before we get into um, some of the more recent ones in regards to Ukraine. I- I'm just interested, I'm sure our listeners would be as well, as to what what drove you to want to um, get into the the reporting side of the conspiracy world, and what does that actually look like when you're um, learning about what these people think? Yeah, you know, I, I think from the very start of my career, this was something that always intrigued me. I remember writing a, um, a journalism school assignment about 9-11 conspiracy theorists, and I ended up in the passenger seat of a cab of the leader of a, a conspiracy theory party that you know believed water fluoridation was 
you know, making us all stupid and that the government was tracking our cell phones at all times. Right. And, and I remember just thinking, you know, this, this guy is, is nuts, but the things he says and the things he puts out, especially online have a constituency and they have an impact and they have an influence. And as the years went on, it became clearer and clearer just how significant of an impact you know, things like this can have. Um, the pipeline between conspiracy theorists, people we don't trust, people we think are out to lunch, people we try to ignore, the pipeline between what they say and do and some people in elected office, people in the media, uh, influential figures is direct. And it has become more and more direct and has become more and more kind of voluminous in, in the last few years. You, know, you have uh, people peddling uh, theories around the World Economic Forum, secretly controlling our government that makes its way straight into the Conservative Party of Canada. Uh, you have uh, allegations that COVID-19 was a bioweapon designed in a lab. Um, getting uh, airing from the president of the, of the United States. And it's wild to understand where these things actually come from and, and how they get kind of obscured as they become more and more popular. And, and there's a real, I think, value in understanding where these things come from and, and why they're as effective as they, as they are. So real quick follow-up on that, just because you said the link between between the conspiracy theory world and elected officials or influential voices, do you think that that has been heightened? Um, maybe because there's either people are engaging or, or consuming alternative media because of a, a distrust for, let's, I don't like saying mainstream media, but let's say mainstream media, or is there something more nefarious here where it's it's more of a concerted effort by um, by problematic parties to pump some of this stuff out. I mean, I think it's both. I mean, to be honest, I think a lot of the time the Altine influence alternative media. You know, I, I write for some alternative publications. I certainly read a bunch. Um, so it's it's not all of them, but there is a class of outlets, largely online. Some of them still in print. Some of them on the radio or TV that make a real effort to promote these conspiracy theories and are happy to sort of repackage them into something more palatable to the general public. And this isn't terribly new, right? I mean, to give you a really brief history lesson, um, just of the 20th century, you go back to, I think, what was it, 1912, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion comes out as a, as a pamphlet alleging that, that, that Jews are secretly running the world economy, um, which becomes a part of the basis for Hitler's Mein Kampf, um, of, obviously, becomes the ideological underpinning of the Nazi regime. You go right up to the 1960s. Um, the the Jonchers um, repackage that an allegation that the bankers are controlled by a small number of, of, of families who really run the world, um, which you know, sparks an anti-communist fervor. You go to the 90s and the Patriot Movement uses shortwave radio um, and the mail to, to allege that a new world order is being run by a whole bunch of, of, of shadowy groups like the Bilderberg Group, um, which is partly what inspires um, the Oklahoma City bombing. And you go right up to the 21st century and the internet just becomes a new vehicle for stuff like that. And you've even seen, you know, to, to bring it right back around, you've even seen the protocols of the elders of Zion become a, a quintessential document for QAnon. So 
the media and, and social media helps all of this stuff. Um, but there's always this stuff always finds a way uh, into the general consciousness. Uh, and so very quick question uh, to you, Justin. Again, we're speaking with Justin Ling, freelance journalist. Uh, latest article, by the way, foreign policy, how U.S. bioweapons in Ukraine became Russia's new big lie. So I think I want to focus on the Ukraine thing. Uh, David and I have colleagues in Ukraine. They've been helping people get across the border. They've been, you know, helping feed them. They've been getting them uh, all the supplies that they need. And we're dealing with this sort of reticent movement uh, throughout the U.S. and Canada, you know, essentially saying that this stuff is not happening or that it's NATO's fault. And now this whole thing about bioweapons. Uh, I would just kind of like like to put it forward that we don't really know what it's like to have a real bad guy in the world. <laughs> Do you think that's something we could say about about Russia? Because it seems as if the central point of many of these conspiracies is trying to just find the you know the shadowy elite, the bad people. Uh, we're not really prepared when it's a nation state and a military. Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, I mean, I think for sure. I, you know, I don't know that it's so much an effort to make. Well, you know, I shouldn't say that. I think there's two things going on. I, I think there is a, a, a strain of this conspiracy movement who feels like the enemy of the enemy is my friend, right? They hate the U.S. government and, and what it represents so intently that they are willing to find common cause with even Vladimir Putin, who they may not ideologically believe in. And, and this happens right now on the left and on the right. You've, you've seen um, members of the far left, you know, members of the Communist Party or various Communist parties, because they can never pick just one, uh, who firmly believe that uh, that Vladimir Putin is on the side of angels and that he is a kind of instigator for a new kind of socialist revolution. And therefore they support the invasion of Ukraine. They also see Ukraine as sort of a, a liberal globalist problem. And, 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 you know, this isn't new. I mean, the far left opposition, to, you know, the far, the far left kind of, uh, let's say sympathization of of brutal dictators and and you know genocide invokers goes you know back quite some time. Uh, the fervent hatred of NATO led the far left to you know, basically aligning with Slobodan Milosevic in in the Yugoslav War. So I mean you know, this isn't terribly new. Um, but, you know, there's also uh, on the far right, a, a, a sort of sympathy that lies with Vladimir Putin because they see him as a rejection of sort of you know, Western liberal decadence. Right. You know, they see him as a guy who believes in, quote unquote, family values, a guy who believes in, frankly, in some cases, racial purity. Uh, some in some instances, somebody who rejects globalization and, and you know, the new world order and all of this. Um, and, and really, that's actually what's at the heart of this biolab conspiracy theory right you know biolabs in in many in many ways just become sort of a symbol for what is what Vladimir Putin is resisting against in this in this in this mindset, right? So QAnon has for quite some time believed that uh, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump have been aligned in a common purpose to fight against the deep state that is present in America, right? Because they believe the deep state is sort of an internationalist movement um, where the World Economic Forum and Hillary Clinton and Justin Trudeau 
are faces, but but just just you know puppets fundamentally. They see Vladimir Putin as resisting against that, and and they believe that Vladimir Putin is striking these bio labs in order to destroy uh, this cabal's agent of control, which is viruses like COVID nineteen. And I realize this all sounds ludicrous because when you actually explain conspiracy theories, they you sound like the crazy one, but. This is what's been written down and explained and conveyed and repeated ad nauseum by thousands of people online. It has been dressed up in fancier language by Tucker Carlson uh, and Donald Trump Jr. and others. But fundamentally, this is what the allegation is. Tulsi Gabbard is a great example. Now, does every single person who repeats this theory believe that um, you know, this is about fighting a war against the deep state? No. Many people are either ignorant of that or realize that's the allegation, but you know, don't care because they want to manipulate the QAnon masses to essentially do their bidding and spread this disinformation. But fundamentally, this is, this is the theory, that these biolabs are creating uh, pathogens like COVID-19 that are going to be deliberately released by the West to you know, invoke panic so that new lockdown measures can be put in place and that ultimately a social credit system like the one that China runs can be imposed on the masses so that uh, these globalists can have total control. And so at the, I, I, I feel like this is probably, um, it's, I find it is often true um, for most conspiracy, conspiracy theories, but I assume it would be true and I'll have you explain um, where where people will take one item that has maybe a sliver of fact, so like a university research center, um, and be like, well, they handle something that is infectious there. They do research, and then all of a sudden it morphs into, look at all of these big city biolabs in Ukraine, and they just so happen to overlap with the bombings. Um, is that what we're seeing here with this, where... where um, what is what is a biolab is is fundamentally different than what is being claimed in terms of bioweapons labs and all sorts of nefariousness yeah and and i mean you, you, conspiracy theorists love the refrain that there's no such thing as coincidences and of course any thinking person knows coincidences are a daily occurrence but of course you know you have to cast that aside you have to kind of put aside disbelief and and, and skepticism in order to believe these things let me give you an example of, of how this works uh in 1999 alex jones who would go on to become famous from infowars um produced a documentary about bohemian grove which is this uh, park in northern california and he alleged that this park was being used by again a shadowy cabal of leaders and captains of industry in America to plot nefarious deeds. He alleged they got together and did satanic rituals and 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 uh, chants, Gregorian chants, and sacrificed uh, somebody at an altar. Um, and the trouble is that it was partly true. There actually was this weird meeting of um, U.S. presidents and captains of industry and uh, media figures and so on and so forth. And they did weird rituals and dances and plays. And it was weirdly satanic um, in, in, in some respects. Uh, but they did not as Alex Jones alleged, sacrifice a child in a bonfire or, you know, use this to plot the new world order 
or you know control the world economy or what have you right he took an element of something that was true that looks really gross and used it to extrapolate a much broader conspiracy theory and fundamentally it works by saying if if you know if they're lying to you about this one thing that's true which they weren't really but that that's his you know retelling if they're lying to you about this thing that's true then they must be lying to you about everything and it plays on people's distrust of the ruling class quite effectively and actually, that documentary inspired a man to break in Bohe to Bohemian Grove fully armed with an assault rifle and a shotgun and a homemade explosive with the plan to liberate the children who are being held there. So and he, he would do the same thing 20 years later with the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. So yeah, history does love to repeat itself. So, you know, with this biolabs thing, it's a very similar ordeal. You know, there are biological laboratories in Ukraine. Um, they are U.S. funded. They are funded by the Pentagon. But what you have to realize is that is that that is really normal. There are hundreds of labs around the world that are funded by the Pentagon because the Pentagon wants to fund research that leads to fewer outbreaks of the plague anthrax, which is naturally occurring in some instances, uh, of yellow fever, of dengue fever, of so on and so forth, right? This is what the US government says it does, and it's what they're doing. They want to prevent infectious disease outbreaks. They want to prevent the next COVID-19 from happening. They want to prevent the next Ebola outbreak. And it just so happens that that region of Eastern Europe and the Caucasus is a breeding ground for a ton of infectious diseases like this. What's more, there are remnants of the Soviet era bioweapons program, which was real, which we know was real, um, where you know, there needs to be uh, effort uh, put in to maintaining those facilities to make sure that some of these still present uh, samples do not leak out. Uh, most of them have been destroyed, thanks to the US, uh, but uh, there, are, there are samples and, and facilities that still need constant upkeep. And that's what the US does. And if you take that and spin it in under nefarious music and make a bunch of connections to shadowy figures who people don't like, um, then you can certainly convince them that all of this has a malicious intent that it really doesn't. Yeah, these globalists, uh, they got a plan for everything. Um, so uh, It's a pretty good Alex Jones. There you go. <laughs> Working on it. Uh, so I, I would say that we are on the on right-wing radio, as it were. So I'd also recommend uh, Justin's podcast, The Flamethrowers, uh, from the CBC. Uh, but I did want to ask a question about the, the events of the last few weeks, and specifically cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, because we went from, uh, you know, about a month where people could send their Bitcoin to the trucker convoy in Ottawa and now people are sending their Bitcoin to uh, arm the Ukrainians, uh, to buy some, you know, javeliers and all the rest. Uh, I will recommend, again, all of your writing on uh, the Freedom Convoy and everything else. Uh, sort of what do you see as this kind of evolution of cryptocurrency? We'll be speaking on this program as well uh, with um, Michelle Garner. Is that it, David? Yes. So we'll be talking to her about her cryptocurrency yeah. bill. Uh, sort of what do you see on that? Because you're, you're a big privacy advocate and the like. I'm wondering what the evolution of, uh, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are when you see that they can fund, you know, occupations like in Ottawa, but also help out the Ukrainian military in times of need. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm actually going to tie it back to what you first said, right? And and it's it's that sometimes these sort of unorganized platforms 
can be a blessing and a curse at the same time. And as much as you might really want to regulate them, you're only going to kind of impose misery on yourself. And right-wing radio is a great example. You go back to the 1960s and John F. Kennedy Jr. tried to uh, impose the fairness doctrine on radio to sort of snuff out conservative voices who are overly critical of him. And in fairness, sometimes peddling in conspiracy theories like, like the Birchers. But um, he, you know, it ultimately turned into a catastrophe. I mean, he, he, he basically choked off free speech on the radio and made free speech basically um, so costly that no one was willing to do it. And when it, that was finally repealed by Ronald Reagan in the 80s, it led to this explosion of conservative talk radio and often for the worse. I mean, you had very astute, smart voices, but you also had the Rush Limbaughification of, of talk radio, which sort of enabled the rise of Alex Jones and, and you know, in, in, in many cases made uh, superstars out of utter morons like Glenn Beck. Um, so when it comes to Bitcoin, I, I think there's a lot of wrong with it, right? You know, I, I think Bitcoin enables um, the kind of, of, of money laundering and, and you know, in some cases, even terrorist financing that we've tried so hard to, to, to crush out of our financial system over the past several decades. But at the same time, it also enables uh, the funding of, of free speech advocates. It also enables the funding of, of um, those fighting uh, repressive regimes abroad. It enables uh, privacy. It, to some degree, I mean, Bitcoin is not the most private of all the currencies, but you know, it, to, to the degree that it does, it enables you know, private uh, transactions um, that to some degree we should be allowed uh, to have. You know, not everything has to run through a government uh, financial system. And I think uh, you know, Bitcoin is, is an opportunity to do exactly that. Um, at the same time, you know, we do have to figure out how to kind of you know, manage those linkages between Bitcoin and our actual financial system so that we're not enabling uh, you know, mass criminality uh, and not enabling terror financing. And it's a difficult question. I do not know the answer to it. Um, you know, I'm not a Bitcoin guy myself. Um, it's not a platform I'm super intrigued by. And frankly, the, the most ardent advocates of Bitcoin are enough to turn anybody off of cryptocurrency. Um, but I, I, I think, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's, it's a promising platform, and we have to be really skeptical of efforts to to overregulate it or regulate it out of existence. Uh, very good point. Very good point. Um, this has been um, our chat with Justin Ling. Uh, thank you, Justin, for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks for having me. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. I have the pleasure of introducing our next guest. Um, she is the Member of Parliament for Calgary Nose Hill, the Honorable Michelle Rumpel-Garner. Thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks for having me. So uh, you introduced a bill, um, and I, I will say this in a cheeky way, but most of the time when bills are introduced, it's not necessarily great news for consumers. But this was a forward-looking um, bill that was looking at uh, how cryptocurrency um, and the ecosphere around that should be regulated. And so right off the top, what was the inspiration towards trying to start that conversation at the legislative level? So the bill addresses crypto assets in general, um, and and frankly, this is a massively growing uh, new economy that is transforming so many parts of the world in that space. And it's imperative that Canada is a, an attractive place for innovators uh, with regard to crypto assets. So the the bill itself doesn't prescribe 
any regulations. It actually doesn't prescribe anything outside to work with provinces, with industry, with others to do two things, put together a federal framework that would incent the growth of the sector, but at the same time, also ensure that protections for those who are working in the space exist. And when I was talking to people, uh, innovators and users about what was needed in Canada to make this happen, there was really no consensus on what those policy items were, but there was consensus that we needed to start the conversation and I've gotten amazing feedback on it. So this is really about making sure that Canada isn't behind, that we're not like we sometimes are want to do in this country lagging behind and that it's a constructive place for for investment to occur. And what personally uh, sort of excites you about this sector? Or what do you think is the most innovative about it? You know, we, we often talk in Canada about moving beyond just a natural resources, agriculture-based economy. Obviously, those are very important uh, parts of the Canadian economy that need to continue. But if we're looking at growth in, in new in industrial sectors, crypto assets is, is a no-brainer. I mean, you know, just think about the amount of investment that's happening in cryptocurrencies alone, never mind by anything on a blockchain, really. Why wouldn't Canada be the place to do business on this? That's really the that's how I look at this question. I think think about the jobs that could be created. Think about uh, Canada being a positive disruptive force in so many different industries. It should be us. Do you know what I mean? Why shouldn't it be us? But I have heard from many people that because Canada really hasn't had this discussion in Parliament or sort of in a coordinated positive way across provincial governments as well too that that is becoming a concern you know how what 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 are the factors needed for growth and because that hasn't happened and frankly i'm going to say a lot of legislators a lot of public servants have no idea what we're talking about <laughs> talking about crypto assets we have to start somewhere so this is the first bill that's ever been of its kind that's ever been addressed in canada so it's a firm stake in the ground yeah, it's one of those things where when when you when we follow the headlines on crypto, it's almost always like, oh, this nefarious funding or the Freedom Convoy and Bitcoin. And we prior to yourself, we we had Justin Ling on talking about conspiracy theories, and we we dipped into to Bitcoin a little bit, and it's like, well, at the same time. I sent Bitcoin directly to the Ukrainian treasury so, so that they could help exactly. defend themselves. Now, it was pretty modest, but um, it was an ability to send. And this is where I compare it to like the banking sector. It's, if you compare us to the United States, it's very difficult to send money. Like something like Venmo doesn't exist in Canada. And there are probably all, all sorts of reasons um, for that. Um, how much do you think... Um, headlines will maybe drive some of this discussion or does your bill maybe step ahead of that and say, okay, let's get the, the people who know what they're talking about in the room first. And rather than reacting to uh, hysteria, let's have a more adult exactly. conversation. Exactly. And uh, I'm going to give you an analogy uh, on why I think this bill is so important I have seen examples in the past where an industry has become politically polarized and that that polarization has actually stopped growth. It's actually stopped other public policy objectives. And that the example of, that I'm going to give you is the oil and gas sector. Right. So rather than talking about the role of the sector it, with regard to climate change policy or energy security and, and having you know, partisan nuance around those policies, the industry itself is a politically polarized 
vehicle. And we need to avoid that polarization with crypto assets. So I, I, I would hope that every party could agree to a bill that would bring experts in the room, that would talk about what the role of crypto assets are going to be in the Canadian economy, and then go from there in terms of, okay, per, perhaps partisan divide on how to approach uh, different policies. But right now, you're so right, David, that just, I, I hate to see headlines polarizing an industry itself, particularly one that has such an incredible capacity for growth and, and job creation in Canada, which is, you know, again, to, to, to just re-emphasize that, a natural resources and agriculture-based economy for the most part. Mm. Yeah, I could definitely see for a lot of the new immigrants, uh, for a lot of people, remittances are very important. And being able to use, you know, cryptocurrencies instead of Western Union or any of these other companies, you know, that's a huge leg up. And we're talking about saving people, you know, large amounts of money per month that they can send back to their families. I only see that as a positive thing. I mean, again, the ap applications of crypto assets are only bounded by innovation imagination at this point in time, right? Like, I, I mean, you could talk, we could spend like 12 hours just going through a million different cool things that are happening that uh, I think are really transformative and, and wonderful. I, I mean, I, I actually get really excited about this stuff. Um, so, so again, I, I really think that it's important for parliament and for different legislatures to be looking at this area as a positive force for economic growth. Yeah, we might need to be discussing what, what protections are needed for people working in the space. But the, the, at the end of the day, I want people who are actually working in the space to be driving the bus on that so that it's not a government bureaucrat or a legislator who really doesn't understand the power and perhaps the disruptive force, a positive disruptive force that this sector brings to be just coming in with a heavy hand because of negative political connotations on, on one group or another, as opposed to looking at the industry holistically. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, I also see some parallels. These are my own biases. I also see some parallels in terms of how cannabis is regulated in this country. My own view, insanely overregulated. Um, and I feel like a lot of those decisions were um, sometimes made in the context of folks who maybe had no real exposure to what the industry was or could be or what other legal markets looked like. So it's great to hear that that, that conversation will get started um, as, as parliamentarians debate your bill and hopefully the passing of it and everything that comes with it. Um, I did want to shift gears. Obviously, um, if you're on Twitter these days and you are following the Conservative Party leadership candidates, the gloves are officially off. Um, it has been a feisty uh, week, to say the least. Um, I, won't, uh, I won't go ahead and ask you whom you're going to endorse, um, but I will ask you what you think the qualities that the leader of the Conservative Party needs to have. What, what makes a conservative leader something that's palatable to the general public in a way that offers some sort of vision as an alternative to, to the Trudeau government? I, I do feel that we need a change in government in Canada, given the you know, a massive amount of debt that we have, lack of forward-looking future for the Canadian economy, 
um, lack of cohesive vision for Canada on the world stage, given the instability of the world. Like, we need a change in government, and I believe it should be a conservative government. Three elections now where we've lost. And as a Calgary area MP, my community really needs to see a change in government in order to um, have any sort of economic hope going forward. So for me, one of the, the key attributes is can this candidate really win in parts of the country where we need to gain seats? Frankly, like Mississauga, like Etobicoke, like Brampton, like the GTA. Um, I've campaigned. I'm one of the, you know, I think one of the few Western Canadian MPs that always campaigns in the GTA. Run campaigns and like the last few elections, we just have not been competitive on issues like uh, sensitivity around um, cultural communities, on um, you know, issues related to women's equality, and frankly, on rights of the LGBT community. So for me, it has to be a leader who has credibility on those issues and is not going to be dragged through the mud by the Liberals to the point where we are unelectable at a time where we desperately, absolutely need to change in government. Um, so for me, it's it's who can win. That's And I think that's going to be the ballot question for a lot of Conservatives is who can form government. At the same time, not sacrificing the principles that the Conservative Party stands for, uh, many of which we've talked about today during the course of the interview on other things. So that's that's what I'm looking for. I, yeah. I want to win. Yeah, and it, it will certainly be um, an interesting, as, as someone who observes politics, it will be interesting to see how this unfolds because uh, despite the, the stress involved with them, they can be quite entertaining. Um, but like you said, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. It's, I wish they weren't entertaining. Yes, yeah. I wish they were just focused on the issue, but I guess that's boring. Right? Yeah, very good point. Um, one other follow-up. We have uh, just a few minutes left here. Another op-ed that you wrote recently, which um, I was particularly fond of, was um, on the hysteria of the World Economic Forum and some of the, in my opinion, nonsense that we've seen put out by folks um, about the control of the World Economic Forum. Um, walk our listeners through what you what your perspective is there. And I say this with the backstory that Yael and I, one of the first episodes of the show that we recorded was actually from the World Economic Forum. And when I see people talk about it, controlling governments, it's like, oh, <laughs> the World Economic Forum is a lot of things. It's it's not what you think it is. But yeah. I'm curious to hear your take. Well, I, I, I guess I would start with this. Canadians have lost a lot of control over their lives over the last couple of years. You know, Pandemic restrictions, I think, have uh, left the country, again, across political stripe with a lot of very frustrated and rightly frustrated people about asking questions about, uh, you know, the ability of Canada's democracy to truly represent views, used to be heard, a lot of nastiness in politics, where if you, you raise your voice, that might not be on an issue that might not be mainstream, that you're called a pejorative as opposed to dealing with that. And I think that there are are justifiable concerns, but what that that grant that's that sort of fertile ground for conspiracy theories around groups like the World Economic Forum. I've never been a member of the World Economic Forum. I they they gave me a, an award I think like six seven years ago, yeah. Um, and so I've been the subject of a lot of these conspiracy theories. But I like from my experience, like I've never I've, I went to one of their conferences. Um, this is like a, it's a left wing think tank that puts out, I think, some kind of crackers papers that I don't agree with um, a lot of what they put out. Um, but so so, you know, like I'm, I'm a federal conservative. So like say, saying that I would all of a sudden be influenced by like a left wing think tank, it's, it's kind of preposterous. 
Um, and, and you know what I wrote in that article was a lot of what the, the World Economic Forum has put forward over the last year and a half is policy that the Liberal Party of Canada put in their election platforms in 2015 and in 2019. So, you know, the Canadian government elect or Canadian people elected a government that was already standing for some of these things before the World Economic Forum frankly ripped them off. I think where a lot of people give credit to this theory is that the leader of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, made an incredibly boneheaded, like dumb move in saying, like, falsely bragging that he controlled the cabinets of around the world. I mean, like just irresponsible. I've gotten on the phone with the World Economic Forum and been like, this was like, like, how can anybody be associated with this group when you're saying that you control people? It's just this stupid brag that's ridiculous. But it's all of this stuff that comes together to, um, you know, give just enough proof points that people find this stuff believable. And my appeal to the Canadian public would be, yes, we need to have politicians that, listen to us and don't uh, dismiss concerns, but we also need to critically think about what information is being presented to us online. And frankly, I get, get it. It's a lot easier for people to think that, you know, Canada is failing at a, at a government level uh, due to some sort of shadowy yeah. world organization <laughs> as opposed to our own politicians screwing up. So we all need to do better. Wonderfully put, wonderfully put. Uh, Michelle Rumpel-Garner, it has been a pleasure. I'm sure we will have to have you back on the program uh, Thanks. Soon. Thanks for having me. Yeah.